0: Tena koto katoa. core uh, Anne O'Brien tukuingoa. Uh, Kua Teo or Waituhi or Tamaki, no mai, mai Welcome. I'm Anne O'Brien. I'm the director of the Auckland Writers Festival, and it's my real pleasure to to meet with you this morning to set off this Auckland Writers Festival winter online series in partnership uh, with Auckland Live. Normally in this weekend, the staff would be frantic at the office. We'd be packing writers welcome packs and finishing schedules and doing all those last PowerPoint presentation touches. But of course we can't do that this year. We can't travel uh, We can't gather in the same way that we used to but there are lots of things we can still do One of them of course is baking, but we're not here for that this morning. What we can do is we can continue read and reading of course and the mission of the festival is to is to connect us with the world of books and stories. It's a way in which we can expand our worldview, connect to each other, Uh, it gives us delight, uh, it gives us consolation. This year we put together a program of over 200 writers and books that we loved. We're calling it our 2020 reading list and if you want a copy of this Let us know if you don't already have one, because this will guide you through the rest of the year. We can't bring you 200 writers, unfortunately, in this series, but we can bring you some of the wonderful work that we had hoped to champion. And that's what we plan to do over the next 13 weeks. Before I hand you over to Paula Morris, who's going to be our host for the series, Paula, a writer, a teacher, a champion for literature, and particularly Māori and Pacific literature, uh, you're in very safe hands there. I want to just uh, set us off with a karakia, a Māori blessing. Tu mai runga, tu mai raro, tu mai rutu, tu mai i Kia tau e te mauri tu, te mauri ora kite katoa, Haumie, huie, and that last line of that beautiful blessing says, "Unified, connected, and blessed." And so we are. Thank you for joining us, Kia ora, over to you, Paula.
1: Kia ora, Anne. No mai hāere mai, Kia ora tāto. Welcome to our first episode. And as Anne said, I am your host, Paula Morris. I'm speaking to you from my living room in Grays Avenue in Auckland. Thanks to our very generous partner, Auckland Live, for their technical support in helping make this series possible. And please bear with us through any small glitches, freezes and other Zoom delights. Now, this is how the episode will work. Uh, We'll welcome all three writers. I'll chat with them in turn about their latest book and they'll each do a short reading. You too can ask questions throughout using the chat functions on Facebook and on YouTube. I'll be checking for questions and we'll try to ask them if possible after each reading. Towards the end of our hour, all three writers will return for a final question or two if we haven't massively run over. Now please share this episode via social media and remember, this series is free to view. So please ignore any requests you might get for credit cards. They are not from the festival. They are from robbers. Now, one final thing. The writer's books are available for sale or order. Just click on the Buy the Book link in the episode description. Now, please join me in welcoming Barbara Ewing. Kia ora, Barbara.
2: Kia ora, Paula.
1: Uh, kia ora ki ngā tangata katoa ka
2: ki tāko whānau Māori ki a Māori kita.
1: te te ārā Kia ora. Uh, kia ora, Alan Bollard.
3: Yes, kia ora, Paula. I'm in Wellington. It's blowing a gale outside. I hope you can still hear me all right. I hope Thanks. so too. And uh, finally, in London, Bernadine Evaristo. Hi, hello. Hi,
1: Bernadine. Hi, Okay Kia ora. thank you for joining us this morning or last night in the case of Bernadine who is in London um, Alan and Bernadine will be talking very soon um, So don't go away. You can just hide quietly uh, First of all, may I introduce Barbara Ewing now in her new memoir one minute crying time Barbara says that one of my professions in one of my countries is writer of historical novels Another of her professions is acting, and she's well known to many of us in both capacities, nine novels and numerous stage TV and film roles. Barbara also, as I've learned from her memoir, used to live here on Grays Avenue in the early 60s, across the street. Now, published by Mass University Press, One Minute Crying Time is a rich evocation of the New Zealand of the 50s, from washhouses to the waterfront, front, waterfront strike, hit parades to Everest, the coronation, rock around the clock, six o'clock co- closing. It's also a personal testimony of family life and the impact of racism, both a celebration and an indictment of post-war New Zealand. Kia ora, Barbara, welcome. Thank you, Paula. Now, Barbara, you drew on New Zealand in the 50s for your novel, A Dangerous Fine, but you never consulted your own diaries. And in fact, this memoir almost didn't happen. You were about to burn your old diaries and journals. So, such a thing.
2: I was. They were wrapped. They were wrapped and ready to go to a bonfire. And I just opened one and just had a look at one of the first ones. And because I do write historical novels, I recognized that they were historical documents, even if they were just up appalling to read sometimes. And so I went on reading and then I, oh, it was a very, it's the most difficult book I've ever written.
1: So you're saying they were appalling to read and it was difficult for you to write. Is this because at the heart of your memoir is quite fraught relationships, particularly with your mother when you were growing up? And I should say the, the it begins with 1951 when you were 12 And it's when you leave for London 11 years later.
2: Yes, it it just goes into, we didn't know all the words. I mean, at that time, we didn't know feminism, for instance. My poor mother did not have any information about women's rights or anything like that, and my poor and dear father also. I mean, it was just a different time for everybody. And there was no political correctness, and there was... We had a view of ourselves as this lovely little country and everything was so lovely and the Maori lived in their little villages and we were all so happy and such a good country. We were helping dear England and giving them food because they needed us and England was home. That's what I got from my diaries.
1: And you say in your memoir that it wasn't easy being the daughter of a judgmental, frustrated genius in the 50s. Would you tell everyone what what you mean by, in terms of your mother being a genius? In those days, and I'm sure they wouldn't have them now in the same way,
2: they had IQ tests. And my mother, when she was 15, was found to be way, way above the scale of, uh, and they were about intelligence. They weren't about emotional intelligence. They were about doing those kind of intelligence tests. And she was so clever that she was sent to university when she was 15, and this was, you know, in the 1930s, and, uh, or, and, and, or in the 1920s, and it was sort of unheard of, and she had a nervous breakdown and left, and that left her with, I think, a lot of problems that, of course, a
1: teenager doesn't understand. And all of this came to the head very much when you were at university at Victoria and you decided to study Te Reo Māori, uh, Though oh. classes, they were not offered as part of the degree there. You had to do it as an adult education class. Why do you think this became such an issue for your mother? I think it would
2: have been an issue for lots of mothers in those days. Mostly Parkia, but sometimes Māori also. It was not the country we kind of... Think of I think I think the, the diaries and of course it was only my point of view, Paula. I mean, I how do I know how everybody else felt? But I think I wrote truthfully what I felt.
1: Oh, absolutely! And I have to say, your memoir is is very vivid, and you really discuss the idea and debate the idea about honesty and truth in writing memoir. When you talk about the way it's hard to tidy up a life the way a novelist would, and that the connecting threads are, are not always clear, well, you also
2: read that part so that will make it clear what I what I was feeling
1: you know yeah um so at the heart of your book as well is a very poignant and compelling and quite heartbreaking story of the first big romance in your life and would you talk to us about that a little no (laughs) all right Everyone's going to have to read the book. Barbara has been very withholding and fair enough because it is, I, I, it was an absolute page turner to see the ups and downs of a very important romantic relationship for you that lasted and an almost until you sailed away to England. I'd say never to return, but you're back now and you come back a lot, don't you?
2: I, I do. Of course I do. Yes. I couldn't quite uh, break the ties ever.
1: Barbara, one thing you talk about growing up in Wellington, attending high school there is a, a special gift your father gave you, which was the stories oh. of Catherine Mansfield. Would you talk a little bit about the impact it had on you at the time?
2: Oh, I can't, yes, Paula. Yeah, I hadn't done all my books were English books. That's what we read. We read books set in England, you know, everything I read, even the swish of the curtain, all those stuffs, and you know, all the all the things about life and to suddenly be given a a book where things were set not just in New Zealand, but in a place I knew like Days Bay, Eastbourne, and I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that you could write about New Zealand. I didn't understand, and I know it's different now, but I am talking about a very long
1: time (laughs) for me, a very long time ago. Um, Barbara, I wonder if we, we should do your reading right now. Would that be okay? Yes, okay, you've got a, a short read to give from your book and then we can come back and talk some more.
2: Yes, and, and I, I do talk about the problems that you and I were just discussing then. Good. Why don't you go ahead? Thank you. Many people say there is no narrative to a life, although we may try to make one. Many people say they don't feel connected to their past or don't want to feel. Connected to it, or they've forgotten it, or feel it must have happened to another person. For better or for worse, sometimes very worse, I don't always like her. I do feel connected to this young, growing person, although it's so odd and unsettling to meet her so alive after all these years. And of course, everyone's life has a narrative, often just not a very tidy one. It's the plot. often gets lost. A novelist who's not happy with the way his or her plot has developed goes back and changes it to pull the threads together more satisfactorily to clarify. But it's much harder to tidy up a life because we can't go back and change things. And the connecting threads are not often clear to us as they are happening, are not at the time understood. Or are hidden, so very many things forgotten, of course, but also the revelations that are never made, the connections that are never known, the truth that is never spoken, and so it is partly here. Some of the people I write of who are part of this story have asked me to omit certain things or to not be identified, because in writing my own personal story, I write part of their young story also, which they choose not to tell, but they also think that history should be told. And by stealth almost, some of the very early diaries I opened perhaps show more than I at first understood. They trace, like old black and white photographs, a picture of my family and me and the people I knew so long ago in the 1950s, But perhaps they also tell something of the country we lived in and the stories we told ourselves about our country then. Kazuo Ishiguro wondered in his Nobel Prize lecture, does a nation remember and forget in much the same way as an individual does, sometimes rewriting itself also? 14th of February, 1951. Went to girls' manual training at 10.30 a.m. Preserved green gauges, Mm -hmm. not very good. After school, we were skipping as it has come into the season. Listen to Much Binding in the Marsh with Dad. 22nd of May, 1951. The headmaster sent me to the cooking teacher with a message. Jeanette couldn't pay two and six for cooking ingredients this term as her father is a wolfie. The school paid. Poor thing. At horrible sewing, I did one leaf on my Dorothy bag and yapped. Listen to the lever hit parade. God, it's cold. 24th of November. 1951. Gosh, I have to work hard at housework on Saturdays. Then I went to Webb's and got my new kitten. We've decided to call it Wobbles. It's so sweet and wobbly, but we'll have to be careful. I went to Jennifer's birthday party, which was good. I got a packet of bubblegum for a prize. I've only ever seen it at the pictures. Jennifer's father gets it from America. He's funny. He squashes the bottom of all the chocolates to find the hard ones. 31st of December, 1951. Well, today's the last day I'll write in this diary, and I'm proud to say I've kept my diary every day for a whole year. Today I didn't go to the beach again. I went to town instead, and Andy and I saw Dear Brat at the Regent. Tonight, because it's New Year's Eve, we're getting up at 11.35 p.m. Tell you all about that next year. Cheerio, 1951.
1: Barbara, thank you so much for that reading. I feel that you have an unfair advantage over many writers because of your acting. Um, uh, Barbara, some uh, questions are coming in from listeners. Um, One of them uh, is saying about how they used to love Your occasional London diary and the listener wondering if you went back to those old columns for material for your new book But of course your book ends at a specific point. Would you just let readers know how what the span is of this memoir? Yes,
2: it's it starts when I'm 11 just about to turn 12 and It finishes in September 1962 when I've won a scholarship and a bursary from the New Zealand government and I'm going to Rada but it sometimes goes forward into other times. Um, I can't help going forward sometimes to talk about big things that happen in my family and then I, I come back again. And, and everywhere I saw somebody had said, well, she writes about Donald Sutherland bri- breaking her ribs <laughs> and, and, John, and Jim Moriarty breaking my ribs. So every now and then something else comes back in, but the story is the story of
1: those times. I was quite um, alarmed, actually, the number of times you seem to have your ribs broken by accident. <laughs> yes. I'm glad we still have another.
2: It's amazing, isn't it? Yes, oh yes, broken ribs all over the place.
1: Now, another of our viewers asks, if you would mind um, speaking to some of the changes you've discerned here in Aotearoa during your visits here, compared with your childhood, growing up, and of course, your life in the UK. What are the things that strike you the most now when you come back?
2: I, I do
1: go into this a
2: little bit also in the book because it's so different. And because of my experiences, I, I realise that the whole Māori situation is very, very different now. And, and we all know that than it was in, <clears throat> in the 1950s when there were no university classes at Victoria University. And people were just saying, what do you mean you're learning, Marty? What, 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 are you, what are you doing? I mean, that is such a big change. But also it's changed in other ways, which I do touch on too. Is It was a very fair... We prided ourselves in the 50s on equality. And in a way, it was fair. We had a lot of influence from England, but, but we nevertheless did feel everybody should have things the same, and we didn't like private schools and things things like that. And money in New Zealand is different now, and there is a big division between rich and poor that I, or well off, and that, that, that I think is noticeable. Barbara, but, sorry,
1: go ahead. What were you going to say?
2: Well, just that it's I, I come and I go, so it's a different way of looking at I do come and go an enormous amount, but it's a different way of looking at it than perhaps New Zealanders do. But I do try to
1: bring that into what I'm writing. Barbara, I know you you come here every year, usually over the summer. Did you come and just get locked down here this year? Did you mean to be here quite so long?
2: No, no. I've been here for three months and this is, you know, this is the first time I've talked about my book. (laughs) So I feel a bit sort of nervous. Um, But I would have gone back because I would have been at the Writers' Festival, so I would have gone back in a couple of weeks or less, uh, but, I, but I can't get a plane. There aren't any planes out. And if, if I wanted to be repatriated, I would have to go before, you know, it's because of this time that I need to be here. So yes, I am caught and locked down in my own, one of my countries.
1: Well, I'm very glad we have you. Thank you so much for, for joining us this morning. And please don't go away, just um, uh, because we're going to come back to you towards the end of the session. Thanks so much, Barbara. Kia ora. Thank
2: you. Yeah.
1: So, our next writer is Alan Bollard, economics professor at Victoria University and former governor of the Reserve Bank. A novelist and biographer, Alan wrote the bestseller Crisis One Central Bank Governor and the Global Financial Collapse. His latest book is Economists at War, a set of interlinking stories about seven international economists during the wars of 1935 to 1945, men from Japan, China, Germany, the UK, the USSR and the US. And the book's subtitle, which is How a Handful of Economists Helped Win and Lose the World Wars, gives us a glimpse into its insights, reminding us that generals alone do not win wars. The seven economists, Alan says, lived different lives in different places and had very different characters and motives, but many intersections. Kia ora, Alan. Thanks so much for joining us today.
3: Kia Paula. Thanks. Very pleased to be here.
1: Alan, could we begin by talking through the seven economists you write about, beginning with Takahashi Korekiyo. So would you just give us something in brief about each of them?
3: Yeah, well, the seven economists, as you said, that totally different um, people, but they did have interlinkages and they did have some things in common. And I start off with the story of an amazing Japanese um, self-tutored guy called Takahashi Karakiyo, who became Prime Minister and was Minister of Finance for many times. He was assassinated for basically fiscal probity, trying to stop the Japanese army um, arming itself. Um, he failed in that. The Japanese army went in and invaded China. My Chinese um, economist is a very crooked, very corrupt man called H.H. H. Kung. He was actually married to one of the Song sisters uh, who was uh, the, the brutal and clever strategist um, behind him in all of this. They became the richest couple in China. Kong could manage in an anarchic civil war by just finding out where the money was, taxing everybody he could, and keeping some stuff under the table for him. One of the things he did was actually to do um, barter deals with the Germans. Um, and the person he was involved with there was called Helmut Schacht, who also became known as Hitler's banker. A very clever man, um, a good classical economist, um, not a very nice person. He. Uh, invented various ways of funding the Nazis to reflate during the 1930s for the war. He ended up actually pulled into the Nuremberg War Tribunal to be judged on whether or not he had basically, he argued he did very good economics and he shouldn't be badly judged for that, but he certainly helped the Nazis finance their war. He um, had some correspondence with the British economist I focus on, Maynard Keynes, who is well known, of course, who was just a brilliant, slightly um, arrogant, very arrogant uh, upper-class gentleman who wrote a famous uh, article called How to Pay for the War, which I've actually looked at again recently in this COVID crisis. It's it's a work of genius. Uh, Keynes was married to Russian ballet dancer, Lydia Lopakova. Her family was locked down in the um, Siege of Leningrad at just a terrible time in 1940 or 1941. And um, my Russian economist, my Soviet economist, Leonid Kantorovich, was actually one of the people who helped keep the supply lines going into the Soviet Union. He was sent out on the, the lake that was um, iced in each year to do all the very careful mathematical testing to make sure he could get supplies in and out. But he was famous for inventing a number of things in economics, actually inventing a way to help a non-market driven economy like the Soviet Union become much more efficient. But he ran into big problems with Stalin. Stalin was his own economist and anyone he didn't like went to the gulag. Uh, I go on from there and there's another um, Soviet born, well in Petersburg born boy genius and um, uh, his name's Leon Tief, he invents input output mapping. The Americans use that to work out how to bomb the German economy into submission during the war. I end up with another crazy, totally clever wizard of a guy called John von Neumann. The stories about him are just unbelievable. Hungarian, emigre American. Um, He's a bit of a Cold War warrior, and he is part of the Manhattan Project to develop the US atomic bomb and uh, also develops game theory, which is used in the Cold War and which Donald Trump's resurrecting today. It's a win-lose sort of way of thinking.
1: I mean, seven really gripping stories. Um, But I wonder if we could just go back briefly to Maynard Keynes. You say that his article, How to Pay for the War, has resonance um, in this era of COVID-19. Would you talk about how?
3: Yeah, well, well, Keynes wrote these two articles for newspaper, which became a book. Weirdly, actually, they were leaked before the Times uh, published them, and they were published in Germany, which was at war with Britain before then. But the, whole, the way that everybody had been thinking about all of this was you had to get rationing in place and ration supply. And he said, well, you could also manage demand, and that was what Keynesian economics was all about, and that was whether or not... You'd get people to voluntarily, with a tax system in place and subsidy systems in place, um, work out how much they really needed to buy and how much would go into which direction. And um, in doing that, he was saying, well, someone's going to pay for all of this. And it could be taxpayers. It could be young people. It could be older people. It could be savers. It could be homeowners. Depends what sort of policies you have. That's exactly the situation we've got right now where billions are being spent on stimulus for COVID but someone's going to pay for them, and we have some choices about who that's going to be. Do you have any particular thoughts on that? Oh, yeah, thousands. (laughs) (laughs) Like everybody, and they're all evolving, and I'm changing them every day when I look at the numbers. (laughs)
1: Absolutely. Now, um, we're going going to go to your reading in a moment, and it is the very first story in the book, and I have to say, as a non-economist, I did read these very much as stories and found them fascinating. I mean, I was fascinated... To know that H.H. H. Kung actually went to Germany before the war and met with Hitler and tried to turn him against the Japanese, sadly unsuccessfully. But the reading you're going to give is about Takahashi, the, the Japanese finance minister, who has an amazing story. I mean, grew up in gangs and geisha girlfriends, worked in indentured servitude in the US, had a failed mine investment in Peru. I mean, it's a real 19th century adventure story, isn't it?
3: Yeah, I mean, economists don't have to be dull people. And although there's a bit of selection bias here because I basically was interested in interesting people. But sure, let me just start off. I didn't know where to read, really, but I decided in the end i just open the book on the first page and start there. Good. So would, you, would you do that for us, Alan? Let me read from the first page. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was dark before dawn on a freezing Tokyo winter's night In silence, the soldiers prepared their rifles and their bayonets, the officers strapped on their greatcoats and swords, and they filed in silence out of their barracks and marched down the snow-covered streets. The contingent halted as they reached a beautiful, traditional wooden mansion. There was a guard on the gate, and he tried to stop them, but the soldiers knocked him rudely aside and burst past. The guard telephoned desperately for help, but it was too late. The officer barked an order, and the soldiers smashed down the front door. They stormed through the house. In a bedroom, two officers found an old man asleep in bed. They drew their swords and pistols. The old man was the venerable statesman Takahashi Karakiyo. He had been Prime Minister of Japan and Minister of Finance seven times. This was the man who prevented his country collapsing into the Great Depression by the combined use of modern fiscal, monetary, and exchange rate policies, perhaps the first in the world to design such a policy package. By 1934, before such policies had been articulated in economic theory, Takahashi had put them into practice. In doing so, he had helped Japan build a strong economy. But sadly, this economic strength had been used by Japan to build and abuse its military might for war resulting in the ultimate misery of millions. Takahashi was the only Japanese politician brave enough to stand up to the military and fight against the inexorable slide to militarism in the 1930s, designing a modern disciplined fiscal policy, which would put a break on excessive military spending by 1935. And for this, he would pay the ultimate price.
1: John Allen, thank you for that reading. it is, was startling to me that they would bother assassinating someone who was in his 80s, but clearly it shows the power and influence he had. Um, of the other economists you look at, and because I, I, I have to say, I became quite obsessed with Takahashi because he was born into that world of shogun and samurai, and yet saw through um modern Japan basically are there any other of the of the seven you write about who you think saw such enormous changes he did or do you think he's quite unusual?
3: Well, he's the oldest of them, but they all um, they all lived in highly tumultuous times um you know Leon TF says his earliest memories are uh, seeing Lenin and Trotsky standing in front of the winter palace, in St. Petersburg and then bullets flying around when the troops came in. Uh, the, um, the life that Kung led in China was just incredible. What a terrible time when the Japanese, the communists and the Guam were all fighting one another and everything was breaking down. It was whatever you could really you know, scramble up from all of that. Um, Helmar Sharp, the German, He's the only person ever too reputed to have made Adolf Hitler cry. He gave him a very long lecture about very good monetary policy, and he wouldn't take no for an answer until he was absolutely sure that Hitler understood how all the monetary aggregates and the economic channels worked. Uh, that gives you an indication of his character, which was he was uh, pretty unempathetic as well. I think they, they were all got some really interesting backgrounds and stories but it was a different time from today and it was a pretty terrible time. 80 million people died in the world in that decade and by that measure it's the worst period of the world ever.
1: Gosh I I was interested to read about Kung as well that he um, actually managed to survive the Boxer Rebellion. As a Christian he, he was almost killed during it.
3: Yeah he was a survivor and he was I mean he was a clever guy but he was always able to get parties together and get a deal done with a smile and a bit of money under the table, not just a bit of money, a lot of money under the table for his family. Um, He was the guy who got Chiang Kai-shek away from the students in Xi'an when he was kidnapped. He did a deal with the students, great personal cost himself, uh, and uh, there, there was always a price. There was an amount of money that could be paid. Of course, being Kung and being Chiang Kai-shek, they reneged on the deal in the end anyway and shot many of the students. It was a it was an amazing time.
1: I was also interested to read that Kung um, studied in the US. He studied at Oberlin and also at Yale.
3: Yeah, he did a Yale degree. I mean, he of all the, the economists there was the one who said, look, it's whatever it takes. And so he's the one who's doing deals all the time rather than being a really cerebral sort of person. Some of the others were much more cerebral than him. But... Um, a number of them have managed to get to the States to do degrees and learning one way or the other. And um, th- that's still the case today. So it's a very big sort of American academic hegemony over the profession.
1: And John von Neumann, though, born in Hungary, as you said, and ended up in the U.S. being a very important person in the Manhattan Project, is kind of a sag to your next book, isn't it, where you focus more on the Cold War itself?
3: I'm writing about economists in the Cold War at the minute. It's different, um, but it's pretty intense as well. And John von Neumann, I mean, he was a boy genius. He was brought up in a middle-class Jewish family. Actually, quite a number of them were Jewish um, in Budapest. And in fact, from his primary school, or no, sorry, his gymnasium school, uh, there were three Nobel Prize winners in his class. That just puts it in context. They used a the party trick for Saturday nights in Budapest. They'd give him a copy of the Budapest telephone directory, ask him to memorise it, and then test him on it, and he could do anything like that. But he was the one who um, really brought brains to uh, a, both the Manhattan Project and computing. He developed software, really, and his wife was, in one sense, the world's first software um, computer programmer. Uh, and that just went on um, until he died, ironically, from um, exposure to radioactivity from the bikini tests.
1: Wow. Um, we're unfortunately out of time, Alan, because this is really fascinating, and your, your book is is tremendous, and people can order it by clicking on the book link as they can uh, order Barbara's as well. Thank you so much for talking to us. If you just hang around, I'm going to talk to Bernadine, and then we'll come back to you. Kia ora, Alan. Okay, so our final guest today, and we're more or less on time, unbelievably, unlike all my bad dreams. So, our final guest today is Bernadine Evaristo, joining us, as I said, from the UK to discuss her Booker Prize winning novel, Girl, Woman, Other. Uh, Bernadine is a professor of creative writing. She's an influential mentor and literary activist who came of age, as she said, as part of an 80s black feminist countercultural community in London. And that countercultural spirit, is evident in her eight books to date, which reveal her lively and imaginative engagement with history from a black woman in Roman Britain to ghosts on a European road trip. Girl, Woman, Other is a kaleidoscopic, provocative, very funny and often poignant novel of the interwoven lives of women, exploring romantic, sexual, family relationships, friendships across generations, hidden histories, rural and urban life, and of course, essential in all British novels, the crackling fault lines of race and class. Kia ora, Bernardine. thanks very much for staying, uh, staying up for us today.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, about this novel, you said, I wanted to create as many black British female protagonists as I could get away with. So Why did you say that?
4: Yes, well, um, I started writing the book in 2013 <laughs> And um, a lot has happened since then. But I was just really fed up with the fact that there were so few narratives about black British women in fiction. Um, Even today, I I still don't think there are many of us writing. Um, So I decided that I was going to put as many black British women into a book as I could get away with. Um, I initially came up with this crazy idea that I'd have a 1,000 women, and my background is in poetry. So I thought, well, maybe, maybe a few lines each, um, and then I thought maybe a hundred women. And then I started writing the book and eventually it became a book about 12, primarily black British womxn. I say womxn because i um, W-O-M-X-N because one character is non-binary. So it was really about peopling a novel with the kinds of fictional characters that are not really very present in British literature.
1: And when you were writing, Bernadine, you talked about one character sort of emerging organically from the next, which is, um, I think, a method that's that's familiar to many indigenous writers, including Maori writers here, like Patricia Grace, like Witi Himayra, who work with the circle or the spiral as a central narrative principle. You didn't plan this book out, did you?
4: No, I didn't actually, that's interesting. And I I certainly have read both those writers um, many years ago, as well as Kerry Hume, who's um, The Bone People I absolutely loved, actually. Um, No, it was an organic process for me. So I began with one character, Carol, who is a young woman of Nigerian parentage, growing up in a a working class part of London. Um, And her mother came into her narrative, her mother's called Bumi, and then I decided that Bumi would have her own section. So just to explain, um, there are 12 characters and each of them has their own chapter, um, but they're also also very interconnected with each other. So Carol was the starting point for the book, even though chronologically in the book as it is now, she isn't the first character. And then her mother, Bumi, features, um, and then she has a mentor at school, somebody called Shirley, who is... Um, uh, a woman of Caribbean parentage, and uh, she also then became a character in her own right. And then her mother, Winsome, who is a, a woman of the Windrush generation who came over in the 50s, she then became a character in her own right. So the book kind of began to grow organically through the, whatever narrative I was working on at that time. Until in the end, you have, you have the 12 characters, you have four mother-daughter relationships, um, and you have um, four units of three women who are sort of in a little, little group together. No, it's actually quite a
1: tight form of structure, depend, despite how you approached it, and approached the characters very organically, growing from each other, the book is divided into these four sections with a mother, daughter, and one other. Really, really fantastic. Um, speaking as a creative writing teacher as well, it, it's very rich material to work with um, from the point of view of writing as well as reading. But one of the things I particularly enjoyed in the book was uh, the way you investigate rural experience as well as urban, and I'm thinking about Cornwall and I'm thinking also about the Northeast um, and the big farmhouse. Would you you talk um, about why you thought it was important to include rural experience as well?
4: Well, you know, the sort of uh, Black British experience has essentially been an urban experience. Um, Historically, there are reasons for that you know, people settled in the cities where there was work for them, but also where they were more likely to be accepted. Um, But it, you know, our our presence in in this country is not just urban. So I really had to make sure that there was going to be, that there were going to be enough characters who were going to be based in the countryside. So Cornwall does feature um, in the novel as does, East Anglia, Um, but there are three characters growing up in the northeast of England, and that was so important for me, Um, including one character who's the oldest um, in the novel, Hattie, she's 93, she's a farmer, Uh, she's uh, of mixed heritage, she's uh, living on the farm that she was born on, she's never left it, it's been in her family for 200 years, and she's deeply connected to the British countryside. And that was really important because uh, as a writer, one of my um, objectives is to explode Um, any kind of reductive notions of who we are in this society, people of the African diaspora. And so to to have an older woman who is also fiercely independent and completely copious which is also kind of exploding other stereotypes about ageing, to have this older woman who is a farmer um, and also, you know, loves where she lives and has such deep roots in the sort of northern, northeastern countryside was really, really important. So, yeah, so so while I guess there are more characters in and around London than there are characters in rural areas, it definitely needed to have um, the rural experience sort of represented, if you like.
1: You do a lot as well with the tensions between different generations and how times change and different things become able to be discussed. I mean, this is something that came up in Barbara Ewing's memoir as well, that different generations of women have vastly different experiences because of the way society changes to accommodate or react to them. Um, Your reading today, I I think, is going to um, really highlight that. Would you talk a little bit about the two characters you're going to read about?
4: Yes. Um, You know, it was very important that, the book represented every generation. So, you know, out of these 12 characters, um, I, I do have women in every decade, you know, in, in contemporary society at every um stage of their lives. So the youngest is 19, and as I said, the oldest is 93. Um, because unfortunately, um not only do very um old women not really feature much in fiction in, in the UK. Uh, Actually, nor do middle-aged women, (laughs) and definitely not many black women of any generation. So the section I'm going to read from is quite near the beginning of the book, and um, it's Amma's section. Amma is, um, she's a theatre maker, Uh, she considers herself to be very radical, Um, she's a lesbian, and she has a daughter called Yaz, so I'm just introducing her daughter Yaz. Yaz was born 19 years ago in a birthing pool in Amma's candle-lit living room. Surrounded by incense, the music of lapping waves, a duala and midwife, Shirley and Roland, her great friend, who'd agreed to father her child when the death of her parents triggered an unprecedented and all-consuming broodiness. Luckily for her, Roland, five years into his partnership with Kenny, had also been thinking about fatherhood. Yaz was the miracle she never thought she wanted, and having a child really did complete her, something she rarely confided because it somehow seemed anti-feminist. Yaz was going to be her counter-cultural experiment. She breastfed her wherever she happened to be and didn't care who was offended at a mother's need to feed her child. She took her everywhere, strapped to her back or across her front in a sling, deposited her in the corner of rehearsal rooms or on the table at meetings. She took her on tour on trains and planes in a travel cot that looked more like a carry haul, once almost sending her through the airport scanner, begging them not to arrest her over it. She created the position of seven godmothers and two godfathers to ensure there'd be a supply of babysitters for when her child was no longer quite so compliant and portable. Yaz was allowed to wear exactly what she liked, so long as she wasn't endangering herself or her health. She wanted her child to be self-expressed before they tried to crush her child's free spirit through the oppressive regimentation of the education system. She has a a photo of her daughter walking down the street wearing a plastic Roman army breastplate over an orange tutu, white fairy wings, a pair of yellow shorts over red and white stripy leggings, a different shoe on each foot, a sandal and a welly, Lipstick smudged on her lips, cheeks, and forehead, a phase, and her hair tied into an assortment of bunches with miniature dolls hanging off the ends. Amma ignored the pitying or judgmental looks from passers by and small minded mothers at the playground or nursery. Yaz was never told off for speaking her mind, although she was told off for swearing because she needed to develop her vocabulary. Yaz Say you find Marissa unpleasant or unlikable, rather than describing her as a shit-faced smelly bottom. And although she didn't always get what she wanted, if she argued her case strongly enough, she was in with the chance. Amma wanted her daughter to be free, feminist and powerful. Later, she took her on personal development courses for children to give her the confidence and articulacy to flourish in any setting. Big mistake. Mum, Yaz said at 14, when she was pitching to go to Reading Music Festival with her friends, it would be to the detriment of my juvenile development if you curtailed my activities at this critical stage in my journey towards becoming the independent-minded and fully self-expressed adult you expect me to be. I mean, do you really want me rebelling against your old-fashioned rules by running away from the safety of my home to live on the streets and having to resort to prostitution to survive and thereafter drug addiction, crime, anorexia and abusive relationships with exploitative bastards twice my age before my early demise in a crack house. Emma fretted the whole weekend her little girl was away. Adult men had been ogling her daughter since before puberty. There are a lot more pedophiles out there than people realize. A year later, Yaz was calling her a feminazi when she was on her way out to a party and Amma dared suggest she lower her skirt and heels and raise the scoop neck of her top so that at least 30% of her body mass was covered as opposed to the 20% currently given a decency rating. Not to mention the boyfriend glimpsed when he dropped her off in his car. As 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 soon as Yaz was in the door, Emma was waiting in the hallway to ask her the sort of harmless question any parent would ask. Who is he and what does he do? Hoping Yaz would say he was in the sixth form, a relatively harmless schoolboy then. Yaz replied with deadpan insolence. Mum, he's a 30-year-old psychopath who abducts vulnerable women and locks them in a cellar for weeks on end while he has his wicked way with them before chopping them into pieces and sticking them in the freezer for his winter shoes. before waltzing upstairs to her room, leaving a whiff of wacky wacky. So.
1: Goddard, Bernadine, that was fantastic. Thank you so Thank much. You listening to you read I was thinking about one description you've given of your prose style which sometimes is called you know likened to prose poetry you've called it fusion fiction what does that mean
4: um it's it's um a form that I might have invented, I don't know, but I wanted to find a way to explore how I've written this book, which is an experimental novel, uh, which is so interesting that it won the Booker and it's an experimental novel and and people are reading it. There's no longer a barrier to people reading it. But anyway, so there are very few full stops. I use what I call a pro-poetic patterning on the page so that uh, it almost looks like poetry, but it's not poetry. Um, And that form, where it's a, it's a very kind of free-flowing experience, I think, for the reader. So you're kind of like because you don't have the full stops, you're not really stopping as you read it. It's just kind of flowing on the page. Hopefully, uh, there's also a free-flowing writing experience. Um, but it allowed me to tell each of these and stories um, in in thirty or so pages each, um, in a way that you might be able to do with poetry. Um, I was able to go backwards and forwards. I was able to pl- play around with time in various ways, um, but also kind of get into their subconscious. So it's also almost like a stream of consciousness. So that's one of the reasons why I call it a fusion fiction. The other reason is that these 12 stories are interconnected. They are fused with each other. It is a complete novel. It's not a book of short stories. It is actually a complete novel. And the reason for that is because of the way in which I've Um, written the language, and the way in which the women's women's stories fuse into and out of each other mean that it, it reads as a complete whole. So those are the reasons why I call it a fusion fiction.
1: I want to say it also reads as a mystery to some extent. I mean, various mysteries arise and are uncovered in the course of the book, and we're waiting until the very end for one of the key mysteries to be resolved.
4: Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Nobody's described it like that before as a mystery. But you know, the thing about the book is, is that you don't know where you're going with it, which is what I like, because I, I like my fiction to be completely unpredictable. Um, you don't know where you're going for it, but also you're, you're introduced to characters who you think are just marginal and passing through someone else's story. And then eventually you've discovered they're actually, they've actually got their own chapters. So they're actually revealed to be much more important than that.
1: It makes it an incredibly rich uh, reading experience. And, and one um, of our viewers um, asked if you could fully visualize each character. I mean, how did you visualize them or conceptualize them as they came to life on the page?
4: They, they do come to life on the page for me as a writer. So my books are very character driven. Um, this is a book which is extremely character driven, but it is plotted in a sense, but they're tiny plots. Um, there are lots of micro plots in that novel. Um, I I have an idea for a character of who I want this character to be. And then through the act of writing, they then, in a sense, reveal themselves to me. I always create a very strong visual impression of my characters. Um, And not all writers are interested in in doing that, but I do. Um, So as soon as a character starts to emerge for me, I start to then think about what they look like about their body language, as well as everything else that I need to think about them. Um, so those are some of the ways in which these characters come alive. Um, and I'm a very visual writer. I like to use the senses and that's really helpful in bringing characters alive through the senses.
1: Absolutely, Bernadine. I'd like to bring back um, Alan and Barbara as well. Barbara Ewing and Alan Bollard, if we can bring you all back together now to just continue this discussion. We'll see uh, when everyone pops back onto our screens. By the way, I'm really envying you, your shelf display behind your head. I think uh, people are going to be Pinteresting you as we speak. I, I'm also... I'm <laughs> So, what well, we're just waiting for for Alan and, and Barbara to return. I hope they haven't wandered off or um, or that Alan has not been swept away by the Wellington storm. I'm just uh, checking, Bernadine on... Um, on other questions for you. When you were reading, I I think it really reminded me of what an exuberant book you've written, that there's something that's very uh, vital about it. Now you have a a background in theater, obviously you were a theater grad as a young woman. Uh, Do you think that your theater experience also informs your fiction
4: writing? Absolutely it does. I think my work tends to be very performative. And actually I trained to be an actress Um, But then I I, I formed a theatre company when I left drama school and um, spent many years working for that theatre company and I was writing plays and also performing in the plays. So not only was I writing theatre but I was also inhabiting the characters that I had created. And it's only fairly recently actually that I've realised that the way in which I approach Uh, My fiction and my characters is very much rooted in that experience because I mean as Barbara will know you know when you're inhabiting a character as an actor you're engaging with them at a very deep level and so I'm engaging with my characters before when I was younger before I was acting them and then I was acting them so that became a very intense experience for me and in a sense that's what I want to create with the novels that I write I really want to inhabit my characters and step inside the skin and become them as I'm writing them. So, so the fact that my characters tend to pop off the page, um, I think is because of that, because of that um, experience of writing and performing in my earlier years.
1: Alan, may I ask you, with your seven economists, they are the characters in your book, they're real life people, but did you take a similar approach, um, to Bernadine's and trying to evoke them as three-dimensional people with rich characters and histories?
3: Um, no, I didn't. And I think it's probably easier doing technical biography than autobiography or fusion fiction. Um, I stopped myself doing that, really. I, let, I tried to let them speak for themselves. I was many times, I, I was getting to the stage where I was putting words in their mouth or imputing motives that they may not have had and I pulled myself back from that. And, I, and you have to be careful with the sort of work that I did, that you're not an amateur psychologist or psychiatrist in terms of trying to get inside people's heads. And every now and again, things didn't sort of completely, um, weren't completely consistent about how I would have thought some of these, these economists actually would have operated. Um, they're all dead now. So I never actually met any of them, although I met a number of people who did meet them. And you'd pick up some things from their characters from that. But I was quite cautious about trying to go beyond that and sort of build their life for them.
1: And Barbara, um, the late Peter Wells in his book, Dear Oliver, talked about the issue of writing memoir, the deception of memory is his term. You, You struggle with that too, don't you? What you remember versus what you wrote down or what other people remembered. Will you talk about that a little?
2: Certainly, I that was so that was just so interesting that that I remembered something in my head, and then I looked at the diary and it wasn't the same. And if I could check, often it was the diary that was right and not me. And I hadn't understood this, but a lot of psychiatrists and poets and all sorts of people have written about this already that that we. We and uh, Kazuo, Kazuo Shiguro also talks about it that we find a way of remembering that we can live with, and that often means that we some we may, I mean, we forget lots, but we also like to remember in a certain way. And I've tried very hard to go beyond that, not always.
1: And I mean, that act that you're talking about of remembering what we can live with, Shiguro's phrase. Is something that that also applies to many characters in Bernadine's novel, of what they s- tell themselves, the stories they invent about themselves. Yes, that's and the- right. Yes, and I so
2: agree with what Bernadine was saying all the time, uh, and, and about inhabiting characters and and how they remember or just everything. Yes, it's it's it, we were saying some of the same things, weren't we? Mm. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, we're really running out of time now, which is amazing to me because this hour has skipped by. Alan, um, lots of people have sent in questions about what you predict about COVID-19 and the upcoming recession, but I don't think we have time for that. But just to know that um, that many people are interested in, in what you have to say about this, so you might have to start creating your own videos and posting them on the Auckland Writers Festival uh, website so we can see more. Um, I do think that we have to wrap up now. I'm really, really sorry, because this has just been incredible. Um, thank you so much to our writers, uh, Barbara Ewing, Alan Bollard, Bernardine Everisto. Is there anything you want to say in farewell to the viewers here in Auckland and beyond?
4: Yeah, yeah I, I look forward to, to, to coming to New Zealand eventually. You know, I'm sorry I couldn't be there. But, you know, maybe next year or the year after. Let's see.
3: Stay safe. Thank you, Alan. Thanks very much for putting all this on. After all the disappointments of having the festival actually cancelled, I think it's great.
1: Thank you, and Barbara.
2: Oh, thank you. And it's so nice to at least meet two of the authors and 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 to talk to you again and to the others. And uh, it's I, I, I'm I'm sorry it wasn't real, but I mean I mean it wasn't together. But I've enjoyed it. Thank you. And it was lovely listening yeah, to fine. the other two.
1: Kia ora, and a reminder to everyone that that you should buy or order these books, especially if you can support our New Zealand booksellers. That will be great. I want to thank you, our audience, for listening whenever it is you tune in here. The Auckland Writers' Festival team, particularly program manager Nicola, Marketing Development Manager Tessa and Francis from Auckland Live for his technical support. Um, The festival has a really generous group of sponsors and partners and we'd like to acknowledge their crucial support over the years and with this new initiative in particular in what's been an unprecedented time for all of us. And all the wonderful supporters of the Auckland Writers Festival are listed on the festival website. Now you can view this episode again at your leisure on the website um, the 2020 program that Anne brandished at the beginning is still your best reading guide for the year and if you want a hard copy, just drop them a line via the festival website and they'll send one to you. Now please tune in again next week um, when our guests will include Lisa Tadeo, the American writer and journalist and author of the publishing sensation Three Women, the distinguished New Zealand writer Ian Weddy uh, talking about his new novel, The Reed Warbler, which will be published on the 7th of May and Yasmin Khan, the author of The Saffron Tales, Recipes from the Persian Kitchen. I'm Paula Morris. Thank you for joining us. See you next week. Mātoua.